Hello, and welcome to Quadrivia, the podcast that takes you a step beyond trivia and into the minds of the people who craft it. I'm Jason with Liquid Courage Entertainment out in Chicago. I'm Jeremy, also with Liquid Courage Entertainment out in Chicago. I'm Calvin with Footnote Trivia in San Francisco. And I'm Corey with PBR. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me at Third Degree in Spokane, Washington. And welcome to today's episode. I don't know what time of the year it is for all of you listeners out there, but for us, it is Easter right now. Uh, Did anybody do anything exciting for Easter? Uh, I made 10 pounds of ham for four people. Hey, I made 10 pounds of ham for me. (laughs) He didn't let anybody else in the house eat it either. It was weird. Fortunately, ham is cheap as hell, and we're going to live off leftovers here in the apocalypse for about three days. Oh, yeah. See, we didn't have ham, but we did have a package of bacon, and they come from the same animal, so I made a lot of bacon. I think you won Easter, Jeremy. (laughs) I'm okay with that. How about you, Calvin? I mainly stuck with the uh, chocolate, specifically some of those uh, Reese's kind of Easter egg kind of things. As I was doing some grocery shopping for the apocalypse, I couldn't help but notice that they had a bunch of little Easter candies on discount that no one was buying, which is usually empty. So help myself to a lot of those and... uh, Hold up one second. Are you telling me that Reese's makes chocolate peanut butter eggs? Yeah. It's just like a really big Reese's. Yeah, we've never ever heard of those up in Spokane, Washington. If you could <laughs> send me some, um, just so I can experience it, yeah. I would really appreciate that. I know exactly where to find them. I've lived in Chicago my whole life, so I don't know if he's being sarcastic uh, or sincere <laughs> or trying to just mooch candy off of you, Calvin. I have no effing clue. I, I was half expecting to hear his mic hit the ground and him just like, he's like, you hear the patter of like feet out the door. <laughs> like, they make these? What? This is part of America. We do have chocolate egg Reese's over here. There's no need to even hide the pieces of chocolate, you know? It's just like, my apartment's pretty small. It's okay. We'll do a little bit of Easter ceremonies of kind of, you know, making a little basket here and there. But yeah, it's kind of, it's not the same when you could do a real Easter egg hunt. Yeah. The Easter bunny came to my house overnight and dropped like money on my kids' debit cards. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell the Easter bunny to drop money on my debit card? That's going to be a hard no, Jeremy. (laughs) It was worth a shot. (laughs) But the Easter Bunny in this economy? Yeah, this is true. So uh, other than the holiday uh, going on during the recording here, how are your weeks as trivia hosts? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Jeremy, you ran you ran uh, content on your, your uh, stream for the first time I think, <laughs> this week, didn't you? Uh, I did. Um, I think it went pretty well, uh, with the exception of one troll, which is the first person I actually had to ban off my channel. Uh, it went pretty well. Look, I told you I was sorry. <laughs> You're never allowed back, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> what, you gotta stress test your staff from time to time. You know, we should probably make a note about uh, uh, trolls and people who cheat and things like that. Do a future episode about that. Yeah, because uh, Jason had one too. The difference between yours and mine 
uh, was that I couldn't tell for sure at the very start if the guy was being a troll because he was making comments to a guy in chat who goes by the name Debo, uh, which comes from, I think it's the film Friday, and I haven't seen it, so I didn't know if he was just dropping like quotes in reference to the film or not in there, or if he was just being an asshole. Turns out, asshole. Pretty much. Uh, it, it, it escalated pretty quickly, too. It went from, uh, like... Yeah, him, okay, he's kind of cussing out one of our friends, but you're right, like, we were not sure if it's a quote, so we just uh, kind of timed him out for a second, and then he came back, and uh, it got worse, and then uh, he basically dropped a uh, racial slur straight towards me, and I'm like, okay, you're done. Yep, that's a hard out. <laughs> and we're done. We're not even going to try to entertain this anymore. See, I mean, other than that, my my schedule is pretty wow. business as usual. This is actually the first day since uh, the shutdown kind of started that I haven't done like a forward facing stream in any way, shape, or form. It's been nice. I forgot what days off are like. <laughs> I mean, you are the one who gave yourself a seven day a week work schedule. I'm just saying. That's because I don't like my family that much, Jeremy. Ouch! Hi, Quincy. <laughs> I like your family. <laughs> For those of you that can't see him, uh, his family is all forced to sit around the table and listen to him record. Every episode, man. Every time. They don't get to hear us, though, either. They just have to hear his one-sided conversation. In the background, he's here, Papa, what did you say? <laughs> and then, no! Can I Can I have some attention really now, Father? Uh, I've been ever oh. so quiet. Well, speaking of your, your kid, uh, he's the one that does all the question writing for you, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would be nowhere without my 13-year-old, sullen, brooding teenage <laughs> son who does all my work for me. He did, oh, though. Man. Interestingly I... enough, he wrote around uh, a couple years ago uh, during his spring break that we presented in our live shows. It was called, Are You Smarter Than a Literal Fifth Grader? And he wrote 10 questions that like him and his friends would all get automatically, but adults just absolutely struggled on. So there was stuff in there about wow. like young adult fiction and Pokemon, uh, YouTubers, all that kind of stuff. And that went How up, did that go? Uh, like a lead balloon. But okay. because it was his spring break, uh, the first show of the week that he presented, that we presented it at, I actually brought him out to. And he had the microphone. He wore my little headset mic and he stood in the front of the room and he asked all the questions. So they didn't dare boo him. It was great for me. <laughs> I feel like they would boo him now. I've booed him when he hosts Jackbox. No, that, that's me. That's me that you boo when I host Jackbox. Okay, I boo you and Chris. <laughs> I keep trying to get him to come back on stream like uh, in the afternoons and do teen-friendly trivia and gaming, and no, because it involves doing a thing and caring. Oh, no. And he's not there right now. Be like, all the boys and girls are going to be there, dude. Tell him to Mac on all the Twitch teens or whatever. I tried to tell him that my friends have like teenage daughters that are looking for something to do in the afternoon, and even that's not working, so I have no idea. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to raise a teenager, don't. <laughs> uh, you tell me this now. My daughter's on her way. She is nine right now, so I've got a couple years, but I, I don't plan on preventing her from getting to those years. Yeah, I suppose that does involve a little bit of forethought, doesn't it? <laughs> And the best news is I get to do it again in seven years when the younger one grows up. Oh, well, I feel like that's your fault. Yeah, but it was fun at the time. Hey, Calvin, have you written anything fun lately? Have I written anything fun? I was working on a music round earlier today, 
Um, it was basically songs by different artists that all have the same title, but they're the same song. I already did a set of 10, which I think were like the quote easy or good ones. And I'm wondering if I could milk another 10. And let me tell you, people on music forums have put down lists of songs in which there are multiple versions with the same title or multiple songs with the same title, but they're all like random little songs that no one would have ever heard about. So it's kind of interesting or like some like 1950s, 20, 25th most popular song by an artist I'd never heard of. And you're like, okay, (laughs) you go on Spotify and they have like 50,000 plays. You're like, okay, no one's going to recognize this at all. So, right. so just to be clear, you're talking about examples like how Metallica and Pearl Jam both have songs that are completely different, but are both named like Black, right? Yes. So like Hello by Adele, The Book of Mormon, and Lionel Richie, if you will. Yeah, that's I, I like that idea is around for sure. Um, I feel like I've done something at least tangentially connected to that in the past, but um, I want to do it again. It's a great effing idea, man. Yeah. And my kind of MO or insistence on everything is it can't be two it has to be three okay like if two things have something in common it's like whatever that's a coincidence but three things yeah makes it a little bit more interesting so i'm always on the hunt for like three things so like my favorite one is you're talking about three things um i make this joke all the time at my karaoke shows because we do a lot of 90s music there just kind of organically and i want to make sure that people know you're singing creep by radiohead not that mm. other song named creep by uh stone temple pilots and no not that other other one by uh tlc correct <laughs> yeah two songs with the same title is like eh so what there's a bunch of them but three that people would have recognized at least two maybe three i guess a bit more tricky so well, yeah, just the math of it is you have more points of entry too. If you can identify any two of the three, the third one isn't kind of necessary to get the point then. Yeah, it's a consensus, right? Two is just kind of like one or the other and three, you can actually start working things out. So you might notice that a lot of questions I write or I ask are centered around kind of like three concepts. And I like that in terms of pattern recognition. But yeah, the rule of three is always important. Oh yeah, it's balanced. It's so nice. It's a really good entry into this week's roundtable discussion, which is the question writing process. So how do you uh, apply your rule of three to writing a general text question? Yeah, I like patterns a lot. I think that's part of what makes a good question. You know, it's getting people to recognize things, to put things together. Do you guys have a take on kind of like that mentality? Do you have an underlying kind of mindset that guides all of your questions, whether it's one category or multiple categories? Like when I'm writing questions for my game, my uh, my game format is 80% static, 20% dynamic. And by that, I mean we do five rounds a night. The first four subjects are very broad and never change. The fifth one is our theme round, and that one changes all the time. So really the big thought process on my end every week is – what the hell am I going to do for a theme round this week? And I try to do stuff that kind of varies wildly from the standard questions that I'm writing because those are so kind of hard-coded at this point and rubriced as far as me as a writer and my players who are regulars, their expectations of, of how a round's going to go. So I kind of call round five my rule-breaky round. So those are the ones where you know sometimes I'll constrain the writing or uh, put everything in a particular voice. Like I'll make every question a haiku, for instance. So it's not so much that the questions are different and difficult, it's that kind of the voice behind them changes a little bit. 
And I'll tell you, that's getting harder and harder to do the longer and longer I do this. I feel like I've gone uh, to the well, as it were, a few too many times on some ideas. So that's, I feel that. I have found myself wishing more and more recently that I did have more of a standard subject set like you do. Because I'm constantly trying to think of something new and interesting and creative. And I'm doing it, you know, four times a week. And it's just, you know... Well, I yeah, you, you do find yourself in a position more... where you're, you know, putting out, I think, more content per week than I am. More content per week than I think Calvin is, or, or Jeremy, for that regard. So that, that's got to be rough, dude. Yeah, it's just... I find myself getting more burnt out on coming up with categories than I do on actually writing the questions or hosting or anything else. As soon as I have a category, then it's like a, it's a relief. It's a breath of fresh air. It's a weight off my shoulders. And it's every other nice metaphor you can think of. I, I can just take that topic and, you know, jump onto TV tropes and Wikipedia and whatever the fuck else and just go at it and kind of escape into that. But the first hour or two of my writing days is literally just sitting here trying to figure out what the category is going to be. I mean, I feel even having the categories makes it, I mean, even though it makes it easier, yeah, I need to write, you know, sports and games questions for one round. I find sometimes, like I said, they're going, no, I already asked something similar to that. No, I already asked something similar to that. And that being a problem sometimes too, which kind of like hinders the writing. You know, I, I think I talked to Jason about this a couple Probably a couple months ago now. But I've I've had that issue come up too. Especially when the players will call me out for it. Oh, you've asked this question or something like it before. But my thought process now is trivia is just about remembering things and knowing things. It shouldn't matter if you know something because you learned it in my trivia a year ago or because you randomly read it in a book or a newspaper clipping or whatever like if i've asked this question and you retain that knowledge and information it's totally fair for you to get the point when i ask it again yeah that almost kind of gets into the philosophy of the concept of doing trivia it's like does it really matter where you pick this up from as long as it was knowledge you were able to pull in the moment without going to an outside source yeah so my new business model is to run the same 50 questions every week. <laughs> Why haven't I thought about this before? Damn, that's genius. It's perfect. It's perfect. Like, show me the downside here. I defy you to tell me that there's a, a, a downside to this. There All right, so Corey, no you brought doubt. up websites like TV Tropes and Wikipedia. So I wanted to kind of segue a little bit. What do you guys use uh, to actually research your questions? Obviously, we're all using, like, the internet. But, like, do you guys have any go-to sites or sources or locations for, for question fodder that you prefer over others? Anything you try to stay away from, that kind of stuff? You know, the very first thing I'll do when I do come up with a category, if it's if the category is dogs... I will go to Google and I will, as silly or dumb as it is, I will Google interesting facts about dogs, interesting facts about the War of 1812. Just, I throw that out there. I read a couple pages. You know, I'll usually skip the big ones first. I'll skip the wikis and the, the encyclopedias and such. And I'll just go to like, you know, little user created pages, read some interesting stuff. If something really catches my eye, then I'll take that tidbit and I'll go Google that 
piece of information and verify it as a source, start my question writing process that way. But then after I've, you know, worn myself out on the first five or 10 different websites I've found, then I'll go start trolling the the tropes pages or the wikis uh, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Maybe even some other like popular trivia websites that are on the space. Like I'll be the first to tell you, I, I look up question ideas and like sources for stuff on like Sporkle or FunTrivia.com. Those are two of the the really big ones that I've used over the years. I try to leave those as a a last resort if things aren't jumping out, but they often don't, and I do find myself on stuff like that. Random Trivia Generator and Fact Slides have both been really good for me. Uh, Yeah, and to that end, the Jeopardy Archive, I know that several of us have used and reused and re-reused. Absolutely amazing source. I think, Jeremy, didn't you cache the whole archive? Like, you did, like, a data dump and and threw it in, like, a sortable spreadsheet for us as trivia writers to kind of pull through? I can neither confirm nor deny that there is a spreadsheet out there that may have the entire Jeopardy archive in it searchable. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a great archive, especially for, like, looking for, like, the final question type thing. Like, trying to find something harder, but not, like, too unobtainable for normal pub trivia. I want to ask for your opinions about Jeopardy questions in general. I love using Jeopardy questions as a source. I, I love the, the J-Archive and the unofficial J-Archive spreadsheet. But <laughs> having gone through those questions so many times now... I've really come to see that a lot of Jeopardy questions aren't that hard. The difficulty on a lot of the questions comes from less obscure knowledge and more being able to click the buzzer faster than somebody else and get that information quickly. On a fair number of them, yeah, for sure. Especially like in that first half of the game. I'd feel it's like a a two-thirds, probably about two-thirds of it is pretty easy stuff. That your general person is going to get, and the difficulty is just answering it before somebody else. And then maybe the final third is actually difficult information. And now I know, like, some Jeopardy person is going to be like, hey, fuck you, guy. (laughs) (laughs) And and I mean, like, mad props. Like, there's got to be so much pressure and trying to remember it in that situation. Like, I'm not downplaying that at all. But the questions themselves, when when I sit down and I've got, you know a thousand Jeopardy questions on my screen that all have the word Mongolian in it. A lot of them are repeats and a lot of them are pretty simple questions. There are 36 Jeopardy clues with the word Mongolian in them, by the way. (laughs) And how many of, how many of those would you be able to answer, you know, within two, three seconds? Uh, At a quick glance, not zero, but I don't know how many. But to kind of go back to something you said earlier, yeah, uh, I have noticed that as well as I use J-Archive as kind of a source, especially if I'm doing like a mystery theme where I need to pin down a very specific answer. Um, I wrote a question for a podcast a week or two ago where I needed, and I forget the exact circumstances, but I needed the answer to be the the word nice, as in like the rock, G-N-E-I-S-S, nice. And yeah. so I went to Gay Archive and they have, as I'm pulling it up right now, they have like 20 questions and it's really like repeats of three different flavors of question. Like they use rich in quartz in like half of them. So they're definitely not innocent of, of going back and kind of rehashing stuff that they've had on the show years and years ago. So why should we feel bad about going back to the well? That's fair. 
I don't think we should feel bad about it. I think it's just being cognizant of something you asked like less than a month ago. Unless um, you're doing like a throwback type thing where it's like, hey, let's see if anyone was paying attention to my like, f- you know, flare text basically afterwards. You know, like, oh, blah, 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 bring up some random fact that kind of goes along with it. And then ask about that within the next week or two. See, yeah, see who's paying attention. Yeah, and you go back to it and you say, hey, if you guys were out three weeks ago, this should be real easy for you. <laughs> exactly. So just lean into it. Yeah. Calvin, what kind of sources do you use when you're writing? Ooh, so I am still in that like honeymoon phase of writing questions where I keep on telling myself if I don't enjoy writing the questions, then I should probably hang up my hat. So while I am guilty of looking at Sporacle now and then, I think someone else also mentioned it. I try really, really hard not to look at lists of questions. I am guilty, though, of using J-Archive just as an inspiration because I like seeing kind of the guts of a question and then maybe being able to flesh it out. So like, oh, that's an interesting direction. I never knew that. Let's see if I can rework it from a short 10-second question into a slightly longer question for my trivia use case. I like kind of more featuresy websites. So for example, if it's a question about geography, I might go to Atlas Obscura. They kind of have interesting things about certain cities, especially about San Francisco, which is where I host. So I like kind of being like, oh, I didn't know that this thing exists in San Francisco, or oh, I didn't realize that this thing, uh, this was the history of a nearby attraction and I, I like those kind of resources for local topics. That's neat. I've never heard of that site before. I'm going to have to check that out. Atlas Obscura. It's it's pretty... It, it can get... A lot of it's more for, like, travel. I think it is mainly based on travel, so, like, a lot of it's not applicable for a trivia question. But every now and then, you'll learn about the history of something you didn't know. Yeah, other than that, Spotify has been one of the great tools in crafting music questions. Just being able to have a way to search things. Uh, even as Spotify's search is immensely limited, you can't search by like just song title or just artist. You have to kind of throw something out there. But just getting a sense of like what songs exist, what kind of uh, playlists are like, you know, one hit wonders of a particular era. What are like the, the jazz or classical or metal or country or rap songs that people consider essential. Uh, those kind of lists is what I find valuable. I I like seeing lists of things and then trying to see if I can craft answers from them. So the last thing I'll comment on is just like any sort of uh, time or NPR ranking of things like either 100 books you should read, 100 songs you should listen to. I always feel like that's a good starting point. Oh, it's definitely a good point, especially for categories that like I'm not particularly strong in answering as a trivia host like literature is one of my weak spots so i find myself kind of hitting the same you know 15 to 20 little sub things in trivia uh as a writer in literature so i'll hit like shakespeare or i'll hit you know harry potter a bunch but you know i don't hit a lot of like international novels i don't know a lot of the romantic novels that that people know and love just personally so uh sites like that you were saying and lists like that definitely you know bring it to your attention it's like hey you know i've never actually written a question about jane eyre I should probably get on that, and I need a literature question this week, so I'm going to peruse uh, you know, a couple articles and, and see if I can pull out an interesting fact that, that people who know the book are going to jump right into and that everybody else can kind of educatedly guess at it. Exactly, and you figure that like if it's on a list of popular ones, then hopefully people who are enthusiastic about that particular topic 
you know, kind of appreciate it or they'd be kind of, they'd enjoy hearing these things mentioned in the trivia. So definitely. So lead of George's weekly trivia, the broken buzzer trivia. I uh, gave him 10 questions. I, the reason I brought this up is because I wanted to write a little bit differently for this. So often when I'm writing, I'm feeling like I'm on a time crunch. I feel rushed and hurried. And I think my questions can suffer for that. So I wanted to put myself in a different headspace while creating these questions. So I went to Wikipedia and I just started clicking on random article. Um, Very nice. Okay. And as soon as I would get to an article, you know, I'd, I'd click it a couple times and something would catch my eye and I would read it. And I'd read the article for 15, 20 minutes and then see if it was interesting enough to me and, you know, well known enough that I could pull the question out of it. And that's what I did with all 10 of them. And so they're more because I sat there and I, I learned about all of these things And I put, you know, anywhere from 10 to 45 minutes worth of research into each individual question, as opposed to, you know, putting it into an entire round. I, it's got more of a, I don't know, these questions have more of like a storytelling feel to them. You're learning something from the question itself, uh, as well as from the answer, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I get that from the perspective of having uh, written questions for a couple podcasts over the years. And because their format is so different from anything I've ever done professionally, it really it's nice to kind of take the, the restraints off of your own voice and just go nuts and, and be like, well, you know, what? if I had all the time in the world to come up with some awesome sounding questions and I didn't have to worry about my particular difficulty level at my venues or, or my time constraints, what's the best I can do, you know? Exactly. And that's that's a lot of what this was. So it, it felt good. Definitely brought back some of that excitement from when I first started. Really so. glad you got that back. So speaking of difficulty, um, where do you guys feel your questions and sets tend to end up on like the difficulty curve? For me, at least, I try. I mean, knowing that the venues that I'm writing for are not super hardcore like some of the other venues we have. I tend to try to keep it to like an easy medium, like more medium, I'd say. Not hard, though, <laughs> uh, level. Except for maybe, I mean, I, I don't mind going a little bit deeper on the like final question or if it's a theme round um, of any kind of specific type, maybe uh, making it a little harder. But for the base questions, I try to keep it like a lower end medium. Okay, and I think you know uh, by now, Jeremy, that I tend to have a slightly different opinion for when I write for uh, the other shows that we have on our yeah. schedule. I'm <laughs> I'm a little more medium to hard on my stuff. Uh, I love, by the way, that your questions are a little more accessible because uh, I tend to use those at the venues that we're trying to kind of build up professionally uh, and not scaring the hell out of everybody uh, with the first question around one is a really good way to make sure that happens. So I'm glad that, that you and I have a, a different curve, as it were. Yeah, no, it's uh, after the feedback, because the first week I did my venue, um, I, I think I was there for th- maybe, I don't know, three weeks before I actually started writing uh, some of the questions, and the feedback was, this is really hard. Yeah, um, I got that feedback. You remember that first night yeah. I came in uh, to, to help you uh, kind of break down and decompress, and some woman I had never met before walked straight up to me and said, your questions suck and are hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, I think it was just kind of like a shock for them because I, some of them that had done pub trivia before 
had done it through random, you know, big, big name trivia company at a local bar. And it was apparently just like softball questions. And then they walked into our show and it was like one of Jason's like, I'm trying to stump my like, you know, show that's been going on for seven years and everybody's like a trivia pro. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a hard balance for sure. No, it is. Um, but no, they've, uh, it's been, it's been really good. Uh, at least after that. Uh, but again, even the people that complained that first week, they've all come back. Uh, and even when, you know, we're still using the harder questions, they still came back, but it, the, the feedback's been different. <laughs> To say the least. Uh, so that's why I try to write around that level. Like, cause I know, I know my crowd and I know that the other, uh, the venues that use my question sets are, uh, about the same. They're newer shows. They're not like, you know, Jeopardy level trivia players. Like, here's what I found is the hard thing as a trivia writer trying to kind of gauge that difficulty. It depends largely on you, the writer, and your life experience and the stuff that you know. So, you know, I'm I'm a big math nerd. I'm a big science geek. So, you know, when I go a little harder in the paint, as it were, on like math and science, it's because I find that to be a question that might challenge somebody who kind of uh, comes from a similar space. Uh, than I do as a trivia player. Uh, and then I find out as soon as I go in for live content, um, you know, we'll have a hundred different teams across all our venues, uh, all whiff on it because apparently I'm the only dingus who knows what a lemnus skate looks like. <laughs> I, well, I had a similar thing with one of the theme rounds I wrote. Um, I thought it was gonna be really easy. Like, and like once a couple things were done, like everybody in the room was going to get the theme. Uh, yeah, that was not the case. <laughs> Um, in fact, I think only two teams out of like nine that played at the venue that night got it. And I'm like, well, I was definitely in my wheelhouse on that one. Apparently it helps that we have this, this trivial writers co-op that we're all part of because we can kind of, um, preview questions and rounds and see, okay, am I, am I being combative with my teams? If I ask this question in this way, or, um, you know, alternately, is this, you know, way too much of an instant get for most trivia players? So having a test audience, I've learned over the last two years, helps a hell of a lot. That is true. One thing I wanted to add is that I think the difficulty of a question is the the tweaking I do the most. Some weeks I'll think I'm way too easy. Other weeks I think I'm way too hard. But generally, I've kind of decided that I like questions I think that if teams feel like they can make a comfortable guess, even if they don't know it's the right one, that's they're okay with the question then. They only really get upset when they're like, I have no idea, and I know that no matter what I put, it's going to be wrong. Like When they get in that mentality for too many questions, that's when things kind of fall apart for them. So I write questions that are what I think are difficult, but the set of possible answers should be limited. Right. I'm not going to ask for the name of a piece of artwork. I'm going to try to ask either who painted it or where it's located, something where there's a guessable answer. And I guess in general, then I, unless they're like really famous people, like try not to ask questions about people, especially sports questions. I think sports questions about people is really tough for people who don't follow sports. A sports question where the name of a sport is an answer is much more accessible. So being able to kind of tweak what the answer could be and give people some sort of safety net of like, oh, these are my valid guesses. I can make a valid guess. I think it goes a long way to supporting asking really tough questions, but at the same time, making people feel like they're not completely hopeless. 
No, I totally um, get what you're saying. I definitely identify a lot more with what Calvin was saying. I want all of my questions to be gettable. I'm not out there trying to ask the hardest questions. My my players aren't out there to say, oh, I'm the smartest person there. Like, for me, 100%, my trivia is about fun first. And I've had that bite me in the butt before. I'll have teams that'll come in that have never played before, and they're expecting more what you would host. They're expecting more art and science and uh, typical trivia categories and questions and mine tends to be a lot more pop culture or fun or funny but that's the the content that i'm intentionally trying to provide i wanted to play that and couldn't find it i would go out to trivia and i would find either shows that are full of the most obscure questions and teams that are taking it way too seriously or I would go to shows where this trivia that I went to was <laughs> Disney princesses. And it it was just pictures of Disney and, princesses oh, and, oh, and you oh, say their no. name. And I was just like, this cannot be the best that Spokane has to offer. Like, this is <laughs> so bad for so many reasons. And so I just, I, I didn't want to be, you know, on either of those ends of the spectrum. Uh, so then when I found Trivia Writers Co-op, of course, a lot of you are writing questions that way over my head. And I've got a couple teams that do really solid on the more traditional trivia categories. And, and they would probably do incredibly at some of your events. But a lot of the times uh, when I when I use y'all's questions, I have to rewrite it for my crowd. Yeah, that's just part and parcel of the process, though. You know your crowd better than anybody else does. You know where the sweet spot on that difficulty curve is, man. And you can always change a question to be right for you. I just want to circle back to Calvin again, um, because I I really liked what you were saying about it being gettable. I mean, like, anyone can go out there and say, oh, this is going to be the hardest Harry Potter trivia you've ever played. What's the 34th word on the... 202nd page of Goblet of Fire. And it's like, it's a hard question, but it's not a good one. I'll give you a quick example of kind of what I'm talking about. So like, here's a question about a flag of a country. So I could either ask like, uh, what are the words that appear on Brazil's flag? Which is like, cool. If you're a super flag nerd, you might know. Or like, what's the translation? Okay, you know, it's a hard question. Or I would rather have it the other way. Rather than trying to guess what random words appear on a flag, I'm like, the motto, order and progress, or ordem e progresso, can be found on the flag for what country? It's like, okay, now you know it's a country. You know what your guesses are. You know, like, what you're working with. At least you can turn in a country, rather than a random sentence, if you will. So, you know, like, I kind of pick the easier way to phrase a question. And if you, if the team demonstrates that they know the concept, that's cool. And you deserve your points. And, you know, you really illustrated, though, the difference between somebody writing a question or a skilled trivia question writer. Yeah, I mean, the first is a hard question, no doubt about it. And I'll kind of throw this out there to everyone else. It's um, And maybe even to you, like, I feel like 
I've gotten way more like empathetic as a person after becoming a trivia host. Like a lot of it is like, oh, I wonder how other people would think about this. You have to do that a lot when you write trivia questions. So, like, oh yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it falls off somewhere, but it starts that way, right? No, I I agree with you, and maybe it is because I'm I'm newer at writing uh, a lot of questions, and but it's I I definitely try to think about my crowd while I'm writing them. You know how would how would they perceive this? How many teams do I think can get this? And you know, I, I would say if at least like 60 to 70% of the teams are getting it for the most part. You know, you can throw in a really hard one every once in a while and people won't feel that deflated. But if you're doing it where it's like 10% of teams are getting it all the time, eventually you're going to get uh, some really negative feedback and people just won't come back. What is the get rate that you all look for? I feel like about a 50 to 60% average per question um, makes the people who got it feel really good. It makes the people who missed it not feel like they're alone on it. Um, I guess that would be like the tip of my bell curve, probably leaning a little more than half the room. So if you have like 20 teams in a given night, like if 12 of them get a question, I feel like it was a pretty good question. I shoot for my my goal is to have a a winning team get 70 percent, right around 70 percent. I try not to to think about what the losing team is going to have because there's so many factors at play in that, you know, maybe the losing team is just somebody who really doesn't care. Like they're just, they're messing around. But I, I typically see a spread between 40% uh, for the losing team and 70% for the winning team. Um, I am pulling up. I've got my last, the last three events that I hosted in person. I have still got the score sheets for those and I've got an average of 63% uh, between all teams on those three nights. It's definitely a good spot to be, you know, people feel accomplished in general, more so than, you know, feeling like they've failed or or gotten it wrong. Um, And there's a lot of really close... I mean, the the last one I had, the first place team, Corner Club, 59 points, they they ran away with it. They had 81%. Six points above second place and 27 points above last place. But then under them, I've got 10 points spread between the next eight teams. I feel like that's a really good spot. I love having a lot of teams clustered kind of in that, that same area. It's kind of hard to make like an exact parallel, though, between your game and mine, because my game has a lot more interactivity among the teams themselves. So the result at the end of the night on the scoreboard does not necessarily reflect their performance and accuracy on the questions. Uh, But all that to say, I don't have the raw uh, data that you have at your fingertips because I don't. For some reason, I wrote a really fancy software application to to run my trivia games, (laughs) and I never built in um, saving data. Well, I guess that's version two. Which is ironic, because the, say the old version did, though. Yeah, but then it deleted it when the game ended, because it was supposed to be emergency data, because I had a host um, that didn't necessarily break my program, but <laughs> my program regularly <laughs> broke whenever my host used it. <laughs> I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Uh, I know you are. <laughs> But yeah, uh, any given night, because I, well, I run like 50 questions, just to kind of put a pin on the difficulty thing, um, there are two things I hate. 
I absolutely hate when every team in the room gets a question right, even though we make it a big celebratory thing. I feel like I failed as a writer because it wasn't challenging. Uh, but even more so, I hate when nobody in the room gets a question right because then I failed even worse. Yeah. Yeah. I second that sentiment entirely. And I, I remember reading a long time ago how I think some trivia writers said that they aim for half the room being able to make a really solid guess and feel comfortable about it. One person in the room should straight up know the answer, like completely confidently. And I think that's kind of what I shoot for. I I like to think that like everyone but a few people would have at least heard of the answer or said the answer during the discussion, whether it came up or not. You know, like I want people to be like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. That makes sense. That was the answer when they get the answer wrong, rather than I don't know who that person is, or I don't know what that phrase is. Exactly. Like, I would have never even said anything like that. Like, I want that, oh, kind of feeling rather than the, huh, feeling. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's take it back a little bit farther here. Uh, we talked about starting to write a question. We're kind of jumping all over the, the writing process here, but let's go back. What's the first thing you do? What is the very beginning of your writing process look like? Where are you writing? When are you writing? Jason? Uh, <laughs> for me, uh, I do most of my writing for the week uh, on Mondays. Uh, I wake up, uh, kind of get myself together, and then I plan to sit uh, kind of at my ad hoc workstation in my house for about six hours just staring at my laptop and five empty notepad documents that I have to populate with 50 plus questions uh, because my game starts in seven hours and I still have to drive there and set it up. Uh, For me, I don't know why it's the procrastinator in me that allows me to do it the way I do, but if I give myself five hours, I will hit that five hour mark every time. The quality can suffer sometimes. I'll be the first to admit it. And it's been real close a couple of weeks. But uh, for me, it's just carving out that time where everybody uh, in my kind of personal sphere knows from this time to this time on Mondays, Jason's busy. He needs to focus on this 100%. But sometimes the distractions actually help. So I'll be, you know, kind of pulling through, uh, you know, Facebook or, or catching up on Reddit. And sometimes I'll see a word or a phrase that kind of pops to me and I'll be staring at a half empty document because I need like a, an arts half around and somebody will make a comment about, you know, Shakespearean plays uh, redone in, in modern formats. And I'm like, oh, I haven't written a Shakespeare question in a while. Let me, uh, let me hit up the Tempest. Uh, what were the most popular quotes from that play and does anything ring a bell can i make this like a fill in the blank thing or can i give you the quote and you name the the shakespearean play it comes from or you know based on the character that kind of thing uh so that's kind of my process uh what's your home base look like Corey? you know i joke about that a lot at my shows i tell them whenever they complain about the questions i say look i wake up bright and early every morning at noon and i (laughs) sit down And I get high and I work really hard for like six or seven minutes. And then I check Facebook and Reddit and my email. And then I try to write another question. And that's actually fairly accurate. Um, Not as much the getting high lately. But yeah, I I mean, it's it's a lot of procrastination. Like you said, I, I put it off until the day of the event. I don't usually know the categories until I'm making the social media post that announces the categories, uh, which has gotten me in trouble more than once. 
especially when I'm like, oh shit, I picked this category and now it's super hard to write about. But uh, yeah, I I do stay up pretty late, so I start my, my writing day usually around 11 o'clock or noon, and probably a solid half of my time is spent not writing. Just hoping for inspiration or thinking. And then a quarter of my time is like research, uh, searching, looking, working on on it. And then the final quarter is like a panicked uh, rush to get it done. And that's every day for me. So I can jump in here too. Uh, I sometimes get high and write questions. Not often, but every now and again when I'm like, eh, fuck it. Why not? Yeah, I used to do it a lot more often. Your guess is uh, writing uh, is way more fun than mine. We don't have bosses who tell us no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, part of the reason why I also don't smoke and write is that I r- try really hard not to write at home. I like going out to a coffee shop and writing. Uh, that's oh. what I host on Tuesdays. And most of the time, Sunday afternoon is when I go to a coffee shop, pop down, get two or three drinks and just kind of work until they close. So like five or six o'clock, I cycle between three or four different coffee shops. I don't stay in the same one all the time. And I just have to be outside of my house when I write questions. Uh, Throughout the week, I'll jot down answers or things that I want to do. It's not that I refuse to write questions. I just don't set aside time to write questions. And yeah, they all kind of come together on Sunday. I wanted to ask a question to everyone else, though. I have, so the way I write is I don't write on a theme. I don't do like a theme or even a group of like 10 questions that are all related. So I write to this general questions bank and then kind of Sunday evening, I start picking questions from it to see how I want to add it into my week's game. Do you guys write to a bank or do you kind of only write the questions for that week and you don't really keep anything on the back burner. I once I once tried to start a bank, but I just I found that I wasn't keeping up with it. And yeah, now everything is written specifically for the event that it's going to be used at. Got it. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I've never definitively had like a question bank. I do occasionally put together just a backup document of stuff that for whatever reason I was feeling particularly inspired in like video game questions, but I can't do all of them this week. So uh, I'll throw this question and one other one just in the bank so that in the future when I'm hurting for that question uh, to fill out kind of my template, I can go to that and go, oh, that's right. I was going to ask this question about, you know, Pong or whatever. So yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. I don't really keep a bank, but if I write something that I don't fit in that week, I usually will save it for next week. Okay. But I don't I don't usually write like a whole bank of them and be like, ooh, I had this other question, and then like, oh, but I have this other one that kind of fits along with another one. Like, oh, you know, speaking of X, you know, whatever it was on the last thing, you can throw in another question that goes with it. I'll sometimes keep an extra one that I wrote, like, for the following show. Got it. So I guess that's how I differ than everyone else. I always write to a bank, so I never focus... like. They'll obviously be like chunks, according to my research. So like, for example, recently I did like uh, Nobel Prize winners in medicine. So there's a bunch of questions that I wouldn't ask back to back because I try to keep questions varied. So I'm like, okay, I'll use these and space them out at some other point because I don't want to ask questions about, you know, medicine every single week for the next month, so to speak. I got to be honest with you. Do you know what that sounds like to me? Hit me. 
a really good idea that I should have done 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. On the flip side, though, this bank is... There are some questions I wrote from, like, two years ago. And I'm just like, I think deep, deep down, I just hate the question and I'll never use it. But it just sits there because I don't want to delete it because <laughs> I already wrote it. So it's like, okay, let's just... I'm always looking at the bottom of the list. I'm never looking at the top of the list. Wait, so those are the questions that you share in the co-op, right? <laughs> yeah, you got to package oh, yeah. those up and sell them to like an up-and-coming new trivia host who doesn't have their own content. <laughs> oh, be yeah. like, hey, trust me, I've got experience here. These yeah, questions are going to be go. great. Yeah, I'm looking at some of them. They're like, oof, that is, that's, that's a stretch no matter how you <laughs> look at it. Yeah, I, I really like what you do, Calvin. Um, that's the kind of motivation that i aspire to have i and especially since you have a full-time job right this is a side thing for you that's correct yeah so that's why i have to work sometimes on tuesdays when i host my game i'll be like okay some of my work stuff can wait until wednesday morning (laughs) and i go because what's funny is that at work i have deadlines and yeah most of the time they're important, but every now and then I think about it like, if I miss this deadline, worst case, I send an email and be like, sorry guys, the something's delayed just a little bit. It's all internal. It's not a big deal. But if I show up to trivia without like a halftime question or a final question, that's like straight up 70 or 80 people who are like, yo, we came here expecting this. I'm going to let him down. <laughs> so like sometimes I'm like, oh man, sometimes trivia is a bigger crunch than my actual job. Yeah, I have no idea because of of how tightly I kind of time myself, how I have mercifully never missed uh, having content for a given show. I mean, sometimes I've dumped out to old content because I looked down the road at the day and said, yeah, um, I have this, that and the other going on. I can't sit down for six hours and write. So uh, welcome to my 2014 backlog. I have had events where I showed up and I didn't finish the final round until round three. <laughs> like, I'm legit. Like, I, I have legitimately been writing trivia while I'm hosting it. That just goes to how terrible I am, because this is my full-time job. I mean, I should be doing this stuff a week in advance, or at least, you know, over the weekend. But I think a lot of it is getting caught up in the business itself. Uh, which is a large part of the reason why I'm working on getting myself out of the equation. You know, I want to hire on hosts to take over for me so I can go back to actually focus on writing the trivia and having a good few days to work on things instead of a few hours. So, and I really like what you said, Calvin, about leaving the house, um, you know, writing somewhere else. And I think that's something that I would like to try when it becomes an option again. But uh, I was yeah, doing that uh, very briefly as a change of pace, uh, going to like my local place that had uh, buzz time trivia and just grabbing food for lunch and a beer and just kind of watching what came up on the screen and hoping that it would inspire something I wrote. So change of pace can definitely help for sure. Buzz time. Is that uh, is that Hooters <laughs> or is it Buffalo Wild Wings? Uh, I will let you know it's a place that served Buffalo Wings and tell you nothing beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, on that note, why don't you uh, hit us with this week's keyword challenge? I hope it's Buffalo. Oh, it'd be awesome if it were. So we still have a couple dozen submissions from um, our previous uh, 
supporters who who filled out the form we put on social media about a month ago. Uh, I think you guys all know how the keyword challenge works at this point. So should we just jump right in and give you guys the uh, word, the phrase, the name, whatever it is? Yeah, let's do it. Yep. So the random number generator has pulled entry 13 here in the forum results. And that entry comes to us from, oh, Lord in heaven, from Quincy in Plainfield, Illinois. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, Quincy, huh? There could be more than one. If you guys need verification that I do not look through these in advance, I just dumbfoundedly looked at the name of the person. I haven't even seen what she wrote yet. I have my eyes closed in front of my computer as I process what uh, the hell my wife, by the way, Quincy, um, has suggested for us to write about. So are you guys ready? No. Neither am I. All right. uh, You'll have 10 minutes here in real time once I give you the key word. And the key word is penguins. Okay, I can work with that. Penguins? Penguins, <laughs> yes, penguins. Uh, All right, so we'll reconvene here on mic in about 10 minutes, if you gentlemen are ready for that. Okay. Absolutely. And to the listeners, we will see you on the other side. Hey, everyone, Jason here. While the host and I step away to think about our keyword challenge, we just wanted to remind you that you can check us out online at QuadriviaPod on Twitter. On Facebook, just search for Quadrivia Podcast. And you can always email us at quadriviapod at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you. And now, back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Uh, It has been, uh, full disclosure, a little more than 10 minutes during this break. We had a bit of an audio snafu on one of our recordings. We should be good to go, though, for the back half. I won't name names because it's me, uh, but I do apologize. Uh, Hopefully we are good to go, uh, like I said, for the remainder of tonight's recording. But it's time to bring you back in, gentlemen, after our 10-minute impromptu think session. First and foremost, I want to thank once again Quincy, uh, all the way out there in Plainfield, Illinois, which is realistically about 12 feet above my head right now, for submitting this week's keyword challenge. The word was penguins, and I'm wondering how you guys felt about that. Uh, Excited. That was fine with me. I I felt very nepotistic, but... I want to point out to everybody that... That Jason felt the need to apologize to our listeners, who in all of reality waited either three seconds or an ad break. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to apologize more for the quality difference that there might be. <laughs> Fair enough. You won't get my sweet, sweet dulcet tones in the first half. Or. Oh, if only. Or. <laughs> All right, enough about my dumbass. Jeremy, you've got a question for us, don't you? Sure do. Let's see if I get booed for this one. Andy Fearless <laughs> Brown only played for the Pittsburgh Penguins for two seasons from 1972 to 1974. Uh, but in that time, he set a few franchise and league records. Two of those were NHL-specific records. The one that he lost to Ron Hextel in 1983 was for the most penalty minutes in a season by a goaltender. The other can actually never be broken because even though the rule was changed in 1959, he was grandfathered in and was the last goalie in the league to do what? I think I like the direction you went on this. Uh, I thought about when I was doing my brainstorming going in the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins route. But if I remember right, Jeremy, you're talking about the last goalie in the league to wear a mask, aren't you? To not wear a mask. Wear a mask. To not wear a mask. Yeah, the, the last <laughs> one. Yeah, the, the lone... That sh- Shut up. All right. <laughs> uh, they all wear masks now, okay. uh, per regulation. 
But yeah, he was uh, grandfathered in and did not have to wear a mask, and he was the last uh, one to not. Hmm. So he was less goalie, right? There was someone else who wore a helmet with no mask. Was or no, no helmet. I, f- I remember. Yeah, he was the last goalie to not wear a mask. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Craig McTavish, I think you're talking about, yeah. Calvin, was the mm-hmm. last player to play without a helmet at all, and he did it all the way until the mid-90s, it looks like. Yeah, he played for, like, what, 25, 30 years or something like that? I mean, just dumb long time. And I guess he got grandfathered in with the no helmet. And I think the helmet I think the helmet rule for players was, like, in the 70s or, like, I think it was late 70s. I want to say it was, like, 76 or 78. I could be wrong. I need to look that up. I remember reading it for a question I did before. But uh, yeah, he played like he like he had just started. It was like his first year, and he played into like the mid '90s without a helmet. So he's like the Mariano Rivera of hockey dumbassery, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like I think at that point it was just like, well, I don't have to, so I'm not going to, which is not a def- is definitely not a good reason to not wear a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you've seen enough hockey players in your time to know that their hair game is strong, and they should never get helmet head, right? <laughs> pretty much. All right, Corey, moving on over to you. Let's hear what you brought Thunderwise this week. Well, in most of the world, Eudiptula minor, the smallest known species of penguin, is simply called little penguin. In Australia, however, they go by what more whimsical name? It might make the poet Yeats fear for the sail- souls of sailors, but Aussies are just reaching for butter and sprinkles. I hate how I know this from the food and drink. So you remember that time you were talking earlier in this episode about how you're afraid that our questions are too hard? That wasn't hard. Like, I'm looking at the answer on this, Corey, and I'm still scratching my head. I got it from the food and drink reference and nothing to do with the... Which is why I threw that in there, yeah. And I want to call myself out for saying yeets and then laughing at myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do know that it is Yates <laughs> before anybody gets pissy in on Twitter or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, send that hate mail uh, directly to Corey's email address, please. <laughs> the poet Yates. Um, yeah, I, I was a little bit worried that it, it wouldn't be like as gettable, which is why I wanted to throw... Uh, I actually threw two different directions in there, mm-hmm. one being Yates poetry and the other being food and drink. So, Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it is inaccessible as a question. It's just going over my head personally because I am 0 for 3 on the entry points. <laughs> okay. Calvin, it sounded like you, you felt pretty confident there. So that Australian delicacy of toast with butter and sugar on it is called fairy bread. So I'm assuming it is a fairy penguin. That is correct. Yeah, I've never heard of that, in all honesty, huh? I mean, I'm not surprised. It's literally a slice of, I believe, untoasted white bread. That's disgusting. (laughs) I I think so. Uh, White bread with with butter or margarine, and they sprinkle sprinkles on it. And it's called fairy bread. With apologies to our our big listener base uh, down south of the equator. What the hell? I mean, I'd rather eat that than Vegemite. (laughs) <laughs> that's fair. That just it that feels like something that's so uniquely American to just stick sugar on untoasted bread, but I mean, I like the question. Do not let my annoyance that I don't know the damn answer uh color that at all. I like the question. I like how you brought in multiple access points. I would just sit here and scratch my damn head at it the entire round. The Netherlands and Belgium also use uh sprinkles on bread. 
They actually use it as a sandwich topping, but they use chocolate sprinkles. Oh, well, that's okay then, obviously. Do they toast the bread? That's the most important part. No, you know, every picture I'm seeing, it is untoasted. And I don't see any reference anywhere saying that it's toasted. There is no situation where a not toasted sandwich is better than a toasted sandwich. I'm going to have to hard agree with him on that. You know, I get distracted very easily. (laughs) And this is one of those times. But as a kid, I was fascinated by my grandma. I would go over to her house... And as soon as we got there, she would hand me a slice of untoasted white bread with butter spread on it. Have you ever tried to spread butter on untoasted bread? No. On like dinner rolls and stuff? Yeah, it's really, really hard. And and imagine that on like a slice of Wonder Bread. Like it it just tears the shit out of it. And so it was, she, she passed away a couple years ago now, but about five years ago, I asked her, I was like, Grandma, how did you do that? Like, I had to know, like, how did you spread butter on this untoasted... Uh, because I'd, I'd get there and I'd watch her. Like, she would go to the fridge. That was the, the missing part here. Is it was cold butter. She would pull the butter out of the fridge. She would grab a slice of bread out of the bag. And she'd spread it. Without tearing the bread? And she started laughing. We're talking honest-to-God butter, right? Not like a margarine spread or, or anything like that? Nope. Actual butter. I asked her, how did you do that? Like, I have to know. And she started laughing at me. And she, because my, my folks would call her and let her know when we were coming over. And she would preheat the butter <laughs> and then put it in the fridge just so that us kids would think that she was spreading cold butter on it. Oh, God. I, I aspire to be that level of petty as your grandma was there just to screw with you. I take back everything I said about your question because the anecdote (laughs) has absolutely uh, sold it for me. That was amazing. 20 years. I was just in awe of my grandma being able to do that. Just to find out that she would warm it up and then stick it in the fridge like an asshole. Just to fuck with me. No, that is amazing. So I assume that's what all Australians are doing when they make fairy bread. She, She played the long game on that one too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, Nana gets all the credit in the world on that. Um, right? God. Should we, I, I suppose I have to follow that up with my dog shit question now. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, let's, uh, back to the game. All right. All right, so here's my contribution. People can be terrible on the internet. People can be competitive on the internet. And sometimes people can be competitive at being terrible on the internet. <laughs> Until it closed in 2017, what Disney-owned website designed exclusively for kids, was abused as a speedrunning platform, with the official record for getting permaband sitting at just under 34 seconds. Uh. <laughs> I, I love that you went there. Yep. I, it was a very easy question for me. <laughs> I think, yeah, a Club Penguin, now we've all heard stories. I remember those days of the internet. So yeah, as Jeremy alluded to, it is Club Penguin, yeah. I love that. But I remember I had just started getting into like watching speedruns uh, around 2017 and like following on Reddit as these people were, were literally aggressively trying to break this record before the site shut down for good. And apparently the workaround is a guy uh, the day before it went down, it was like March 29th, 2017. So March 28th, he pulled together what's, you know, apparently an ideal run of getting permaban from Club Penguin. Uh, he got a 24 hour ban. 
and then the site shut down forever before that ban was lifted. So technically, he holds the all-time unbreakable record for getting perma banned from Club Penguin in uh, 33.83 seconds. Take that, wife who submitted this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, hopefully, uh, I like that. I like that direction. I did not see anyone going the Club Penguin route, and that was a good one. I'm oh mad I didn't think of it. Right. I thought I was being witty. I want to stress that's the kind of thing that, you know, I would have loved to put in a penguin round in my trivia. And I'd expect, like, I'd go into it saying, oh, most of my players are going to get this. And then none of them would. And I'd remember that, oh, yeah, they didn't all spend their life on the Internet like me. Yeah, I definitely went for, like, an interesting fact more than a difficult question on this one. That's fair. It was solid. Well, thank you. Uh, Calvin, what do you have? I have a question where... I think the answer is rather straightforward. So in case you want to actually try and solve a question, I have another one prepared. So my question goes like this. In 2005, Simon & Schuster published the children's book Antango Makes Three, which was controversial for showing what animals forming a gay family. It is based on a true story. Now, I'm not a zoologist here, but I'm going to have to throw a guess out that it's penguins. <laughs> oh. Hmm. Let me think about it. Actually, that I one. remember reading that, that story. That actually, that makes more sense than where I was going with it. <laughs> like, the uh, the mother penguin or whatever, like, died, and, like, the, the this gay penguin couple adopted the baby. That's exactly what happened at the New York, one of the New York zoos. I don't know which New York zoo, but, yeah, that was the inspiration for the story. And it became ALA's most banned or requested to be banned book i think in 2000 from 2006 to 2010 just the proves that penguins are better than some humans yes indeed agreed i like that one yeah i don't remember the, the actual news story uh as much as i remember all the headlines about the controversy around the book so that definitely it rang a bell um but not so much when the real life situation happened yeah that's true all right so what's your other one just for fun uh, just for fun, uh, this one. While filming Mad Max 2, a cameraman told director George Miller, you've got to make a film in Antarctica. It's just like out there in the wasteland. It's spectacular. This comment led George Miller to write and direct which 2006 movie? Uh, March of the Penguins? No. Uh, the see. years add up, but... There's no way that was the director. I'm Googling it right now before I sound like an idiot. It's either March of the Penguins or Happy Feet, which would be weird as hell. It really is Happy Feet. Yeah, that's exactly what I, I knew. Happy Feet was 2006, and obviously it's a big thing. No clue. That was George Miller? That, uh, yeah. I did not know that either. No clue that it was the Mad Max director. That is real. I like that. That was a, a really solid one, too, because... Even though I immediately knew the answer, I also immediately second-guessed myself and said it could not be him. (laughs) There's one other entry point to guessing why it would be George Miller and why George Miller would make an animal-based movie. Didn't he also do Babe? Yes, he did. Mm, Yeah. What? I did not know that, actually. So, a man of many talents of desolate Australian wasteland carnage and happy animal movies. (laughs) Uh, Babe being a very uh, notable movie as well. Yeah. Oh, Babe is one of my favorite movies. A, watching as I was a kid, and B, like, forever referencing interesting things. My one fun Babe comment is that the actor who played the farmer in Babe, I think his name's James something, 
Uh, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the Academy. James Cromwell. Crom- thank you, James Cromwell. Yeah. James Cromwell, yeah. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. So that implies that Babe is the lead actor in that case. <laughs> and the Academy did not want that to be. So he did all of his own campaigning and sponsoring for that. So the wow. Academy didn't. They didn't really like the fact that Babe was the main actor and that he was the supporting actor. See, I never thought about the fact that he got the supporting ask or not. I, I have come across or written the question uh, about James Cromwell being the tallest person to ever be nominated for an acting Oscar mm-hmm. uh, off that movie at six foot friggin seven. Yep. Man <laughs> is tall. But I never put the two and two together that he's not the star of that movie. <laughs> and he's he's been in like some good films, right? Like, I think it was The Green Mile. I could be wrong. Yeah. 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 He's been in. Quite a few. Green Mile. Uh, he was in one of the Star Treks. Yeah, he's in Star Trek First Contact. That's how I know him. He plays, um, oh, why can't I think of the, the character's name, but uh, the guy who basically invents the warp drive. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly who he is in that movie. Here's, a, here's another Babe question for you. Babe only won one Oscar. Do you know what it was for? That would be a shitty question in an event, but... I would guess cinematography or costume... It was nominated for Best Picture. It was. Was it really? Yeah, no, it was. It was up for Best Picture, but it didn't win. It did get the Golden Globe for Best Picture. What? Did I just miss the boat on how good Babe was in the 90s? Because I... Oh. Oh, don't worry. It's still good right now. Is it visual effects? Yep. It, okay. it won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. Well, at least that makes a lot of sense. Thank God. All right, so... After uh, that that digression, uh, the questions are up there in the ether. Um, you listeners, it comes to you to determine which of us wrote the best question based on the keyword penguins. Uh, make sure that you submit your votes on the accompanying Twitter poll that we're going to put up once this episode goes live. You can find that on Twitter, at uh, QuadriviaPod. And if you would like to submit your suggestions for uh, a keyword, phrase, or name for us to write around, uh, make sure you send us an email at quadriviapod at gmail.com for those. So all that question writing got me thinking, guys. Uh, You know who's a pretty good question writer and hasn't presented a game on our format here yet? That would be Calvin. Calvin, do you have something for us to uh, close out the episode? Yes, I do. So we're going to try out what I do for my very last set of questions every trivia night. And I'll explain how it works, and then we can jump straight into it. So the inspiration for this is, I like to call it a hidden theme. I ask five to six questions. I like to think the questions are a little bit more difficult. I don't expect every team to get all five or six. And there is a hidden theme across each of those answers. And I make it so that Getting the hidden theme is the only important part. You don't actually need the answers to get any points. The only thing that I care about is the hidden theme. Oh, that's uh, neat. This hidden theme is worth about 50... Like, you can wager between 0 and 10 points. So that's roughly one-fifth of the total point values. So I think this is the fairest way for a team to come back. And it kind of still keeps people interested. And especially if I make the five or six questions in completely different categories, that way it's not like, oh, knowing one very specific thing is suddenly worth many, many more points than a regular question I asked throughout the time. So um, 
the hidden theme is like the answers always will have literally nothing to do with each other. It's all just picking a specific word in the answers. And I know some other hosts do hidden themes where they like, oh, this word pairs with these other words. I like to be a little more explicit. Usually like these words are all examples of something. All I have to do is tell me what they're examples of. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, with that being said, I have six questions for you tonight. So uh, number one goes like this. With 11 million visitors annually, what is the most visited national park in the United States? Popular attractions include Mount Leconte, the Chimney Tops, and Laurel Falls. All right. So if we're kind of talking this out, Chimney Tops makes me think of like Yosemite or Yellowstone. I would lean more towards Yosemite, but I don't know. Um, I'm really bad at my national parks. Well, I don't think we're, if I understand correctly, we're not obligated to answer this question um, right now until we move on. So let's just kind of lock those down as tentative guesses and, and hear what the next one is. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly how it works. If you don't know the answer, it's okay. You don't have to get it. You can still maybe get the hidden theme from the remainder of the questions. I've seen the team get it with just one question, which is crazy because it seems really ambiguous, but they got it. So that's that's really nuts. But let's do question number two. What piece of furniture did John F. Kennedy keep in the Oval Office to help with the back injuries he sustained in World War II? One recently sold for $80,000. Huh. Piece of furniture did he keep in the White House? Yep. There's a lot of photos of him or the photos of this thing. Um, I'm, I'm kind of tentative. I'm hesitant to even throw out a guess on this. Like, Barca lounger? I don't know. I would just assume it's more simple than we're allowing it to be i would assume it's just like a chair (laughs) maybe (laughs) like a a lazy boy there's a lot of pictures of him sitting right yeah but it's a certain type of chair i mean like a lazy boy or some kind of like it is a uniquely kennedy thing as in i don't think other presidents have it so chair would be too general but lazy boy would work right if that were the answer. Assuming that were the correct answer. Okay, so we need to be more specific. So should we put a pin in this one and move on and see if we can back solve it maybe? Yeah. I think the next one is a little more lock inable. So let's go to question number three. Uh, number three is, what 1990s television series inspired the likes of Joss Whedon in creating the show Buffy, Quentin Tarantino in creating the movie Kill Bill, and the lesbian community in creating a bunch of fan fiction? I want to say it's Buffy, but it can't be Buffy correct because it inspired yeah. joss whedon to create buffy so it became it was earlier than that oh i know what it is xena warrior princess oh hell yeah it is okay okay uh xena had a female travel companion just yes just uh saying. gabrielle i totally watched the hell out of that show <laughs> i watched the hell out of gabrielle <laughs> although lucy lawless to her credit looks great these days mm-hmm Okay, so there you go. You got one out of the three, so Xeno Warrior Princess is one of the answers you have to work with. Uh, let's move on to number four. One growing technology sector in the United States is located in North Carolina, led by the universities of North Carolina State, Duke, and UNC. What is the nickname of this region of roughly two million residents? Oh, this is tickling something in the back of my head. Crap. Like, I've heard it in a political sense. I've heard this before, and it's going to drive me so nuts now. So, my folks live over in North Carolina, too. 
I'm, I'm, I'm like picturing political discussions from like 2016 about North Carolina in the presidential election. And like this specific part of North Carolina is very blue on electoral maps. So they referred to it by a phrase. And I cannot for the life of me remember what the hell that phrase is. And we can discuss the wording of the question after. I've got a brother-in-law that works. I don't know if he's still working for him, but he, he worked uh, for Facebook over there. And I'm guessing they're probably in that area. Silicon Valley 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> it's like the University Belter or something like that. Fuck, let's hear number five. Okay, number five. So the following three people, we have Yo-Yo Ma, Oliver Queen, and Bill Nye the Science Guy, are all individuals associated with objects that share what common name? Well, Oliver Queen is the Green Arrow. Yeah. Yo-Yo Ma is a famous cellist, so I... It's a bow. Yeah. What's Bill Nye's? Bow tie. Oh, yeah. All right. Yes, indeed. So they all have bows of some varying form, but bow is the answer for that one. And you got one more question left. So this is number six. Oh, thank God. What 1977 children's book features the main characters Jesse and Leslie, who create their own imaginary world? Spoilers. It's a sad book. And didn't they make a movie a couple years ago about like a classic like a wrinkle in time or bridge to terabithia no it's it's bridge to terabithia yeah i think it's 100 percent. yeah 100 percent bridge to terabithia it is way sadder than a wrinkle in time so yeah i think you're three of six we have at least three answers we can back solve a couple more of these but what the hell is this theme it's not jumping out to me yet okay so we've got bow and bridge and bow bridges yeah <laughs> uh xena or warrior princess, yeah. So a bow, a bridge, a warrior. A bow, a bridge, a princess. All right, let's start. Let's go back to number one. So the most visited national park in the United States. Again, Yellowstone jumps to mind. Maybe Yosemite could yeah, be something. Those are both not like super low on the list, but I don't think they're even like top three. Yosemite is number three. Okay. But Yellowstone is not in the top three. No kidding, huh? Hmm. It's too far away from everything. I think that's a problem. People don't want to go all the way out to Montana. That's fair. Hey, first of all, <laughs> Yellowstone is somewhere I've been many times. It's only a couple hours away, and it's awesome. Are these maybe, and I'm just throwing a flyer out here, guys, are these maybe yoga poses? The bow, the bridge, the warrior? I think that's definitely a very solid uh, guess. Let's see if we can work backwards and figure out. Yeah, what was the second question, Calvin? What piece of furniture did JFK keep in the Oval Office to help with his back injuries that he sustained in World War II? Oh, yeah, the downward dog autumn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've got the national parks. We've got uh, JFK. We've got Xena, Bo, and Bridge. And then you got the North Carolina region. Which I think is going to be the something triangle. So I kind of have triangle up on my on my note sheet here. Like the campus triangle or well, something. Well, I mean, I could see like a triangle pose or something. I don't <laughs> I do not do yoga. I don't fucking know. I'm like, the other thing I see is like Legend of Zelda like things, but that's not it either. He said that'd be too vague. Like these are all examples of a category of thing. Again, I, yoga poses is all I can kind of lock in on right now, so if you guys have anything better, by all means, jump in. Let's go to... I, I want to talk about JFK in the Oval Office. Okay. okay. Um, think of pictures that you've seen of him. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, really just the one in a car, though, is canon. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh. <laughs> oh, tell me that's not the most famous picture of him. Come on. Off the top of my head, that's probably the most famous <laughs> one, but... I'd say... Uh. All the pictures, I see him, like, leaning on his desk, but that's not going to be good for his back. Maybe sitting in the couch. Like a recliner? I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him sitting in a recliner, though. They're just, like, standard chairs. Right. Uh, like, office chairs. Rocking. It's unique to JFK. Marilyn Monroe's head? I don't know. <laughs> it actually, annoyingly, sometimes it doesn't, it, like, for this question, it doesn't particularly matter, like the nuances because of the way the hidden theme works out right but, uh, hmm. it is a simple piece of furniture so it couldn't just be chair but it could be like rocking chair or recliner or like something like that yeah like i think you're barking up the right tree with regards to those that's that's why i said lazy boy guys is maybe niagara falls a national park in the u.s maybe but i don't believe there's a mountain like or like some of the stuff he listed chimney like, tops is, yeah. is somehow connecting me to there for some reason because okay. i was thinking more there's a not glacier that was uh there's god i'm going south what's the one in tennessee-ish like area uh smoky mountains yeah great smoky mountain national park the great smoky mountains are the most visited national park in the united states oh Oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> uh, any guesses what number two is? If number one is Great Smoky Mountains and number three is Yosemite. Maybe like Zion? No. Or but much... Uh, Glacier, Mount Gla- or Glacier National Park? Uh, much more famous. <laughs> Mount Rushmore? Grand Canyon? Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is number two. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the order goes Great Smoky Mountains, Grand Canyon, Yosemite. Okay. All right. So we've got... Great Smoky Mountains. Chair. <laughs> it's a rocking chair. You said it. It's a rocking chair. Yeah. It's just a... Oh. I mean, a rocking chair has no moving parts, right? Like, that's a fair assessment to say about a rocking chair. It moves, but there's no moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like... I'm not familiar enough with yoga poses to... But I could see a, a rocking pose and a mountains pose. <laughs> <laughs> so, we got Great Smoky Mountains... Rocking Chair, Xena, Xena Warrior Princess, Bo, Bridge Terabithia, and as you guys kept saying Triangle, I don't know if it's right, but Research Triangle keeps coming into mind. Yeah, it's the Research Triangle. Yeah. Yep. And I guess the clue's in the three universities, if that helps. Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking for Bridge, Bow, Triangle, mm-hmm. Warrior, Yep. Rocking, or is it Chair? It's Chair. So you guys think it's yoga poses then? Yes. Ah. You were on the right. You already said it. And then for my regulars, at least, it's being convincing enough to convince your teams that that's the right hidden theme. And it's worth 10 points. So, yes, uh, these are all yoga poses. So yoga poses are the two words that I was looking for. And you can see how uh, the only dynamic is you don't get any points for answering more questions. The only thing I care about is the hidden theme. So okay. you get a little leeway. So we had it from the three, thanks to Jason. We just tried to talk him out of it. Yes. <laughs> I think you tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> yes. And that's the that's the kind of mindset, right, like I would want people to have, right? Like yeah. get a couple of the easy ones out of the way, try to see what it might be, come up with an idea, see if it's possible to backfill, confirm, deny. 
All right. Like, I'll level with you. If I were just playing your game and this round on my own, I would have been confident on exactly one of these answers. <laughs> so I'm glad that we went after this as a team. Yeah. And I think this type of question is supposed to be tackled as a team, right? Like, the theme is the hard one to validate. And I know not everyone does yoga, but I live in San Francisco where literally everyone <laughs> does yoga. So yeah. I think people feel more strongly about that being correct. So that's an example of how my final question works. Nice, I like that. I liked it. It's it's unique and clever. Yeah, it's uh And I like it better that I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, what do you think? Should we wrap it up for the night? Yeah, I think so. I think if people enjoyed Calvin's mystery theme, they should let him know on Twitter, which they can do at what Twitter handle? At footnote underscore trivia. Or you can also find me on my website, which is footnotetrivia.com. That works, too. I I was more leaning into having somebody plug the Quadrivia (laughs) podcast Twitter handle, but... I thought we were doing it at the end. We do our individual ones and at the really end. I have no idea. (laughs) No, if you want to be the prima donna after your game round, Calvin, you're you're more than welcome to. (laughs) But while you're giving just heaps of praise to Calvin on Twitter, why not uh, swing by our Twitter account? That's at QuadriviaPod. Or if, like me, you almost never use Twitter, send us an email over at QuadriviaPod at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can also find us on Facebook. You can search QuadriviaPod and we'll show up, I'm sure. I hope, yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes. I I like that you think we're going to have show notes. You have such high aspirations for us, Jeremy. You know, I try. What can I say? Eventually. We'll get there. Let's get the hell out of this episode, shall we? Uh, It's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, Once again, I'm Jason with Liquid Courage Entertainment. I'm Jeremy, also with Liquid Courage Entertainment. I'm Calvin with Footnote Trivia, as you just heard. And I'm Corey with Third Degree Entertainment. Thanks for listening. See you next time, guys. We'll see you. Bye. Exit music. Uh, wait, I want to go back to the Tempest. Did you know that there was a uh, nude and or mostly nude production of the Tempest done in uh, Central Park? I feel like I knew oh, that they've woman. done Shakespeare in the nude uh, in New York City, but I, this specific one doesn't ring a bell. No. You're talking about Torn Out Theater? Uh, I'm talking about the all-nude, uh, all-woman performance of the tempest co-directed by peter Strait in central park yeah okay i have to concede i didn't know that he did that and i feel really bad about it now yep that's why i brought it up and i was surprised that you didn't know that you should be disappointed we'll we'll make sure that he hears this episode before he agrees to uh come on the show (laughs) you're a terrible person but i understand completely